I want to say that I appreciate your patience tonight. As you can tell, uh, we are a little bit out of sorts. Maybe it's all in my head, but uh, with God's grace, we are making our way through this service for His glory and for our good. I want you to look to Ephesians 4 as tonight we begin a mini-series that will take us through the Lenten season. This is the season of Lent. And as you know, many Christians throughout the world have decided to give up something for Lent. They will give up meat or social media, chocolate, you know, stuff like that. That's not really how we're approaching the season, but many Christians throughout the world are doing that. According to a Twitter Lent tracker, there is such a thing, a Twitter Lent tracker. Most Christians who practice Lent are giving up, top of the list, social networking. Second, alcohol. Third, Twitter. Fourth, chocolate. And in fifth place, they're giving up Lent for Lent. So some funny guys out there. So again, while we mark the Lenten season as we sort of give a nod to the Christian calendar, we're not practicing it the way many other Christians do. I want you to know that it matters very little to me whether you give up something like Facebook or Hot hot Cheetos for Lent. It matters very little to me what you decide to give up in, in those areas of your life. But as your pastor, it matters very much to me that you give up things like sin and that you give up yourself for the Lord. And as we make our way through this section of the book of Ephesians from Ephesians 4, 17 down to 521 over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. We are calling this new series Relent, Relent, a play on words, but to say it is a time to give up. Give up your sins and to give up yourself for the Lord. The goal of this series is to help us do that very thing. And so what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks is exploring what God's word says to us about sanctification, about practical sanctification, the pursuit of Christ and becoming conformed to his image. And with that introduction to this mini-series and what we're about, I encourage you to stand if you are able and hear the Word of God from Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Hear the Word of God. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed." That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. 
You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. A few weeks ago, we explored the gracious work of salvation of the triune God in Ephesians chapter 1. And we heard and I hope learned the truth about the doctrine of election, that scary, scary doctrine of election, where we learned that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that's where many people stop reading that verse, by the way. But then Paul goes on to tell us why God the Father did that and for what purpose God the Father elected us in Christ. He goes on to say that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so for the next few weeks, this is what we're going to explore is how to live as God's chosen people, God's elect people. And how to become holy and blameless before the face of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 17, right out of the bat, he gives us an imperative, a commandment that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's calling us as God's chosen people to mark the antithesis between the world and the church. To live in a way that shows distinction, a way that shows a difference between the world and the church. When he uses the word Gentile here, he uses it in such a way that we should be thinking of unbelievers and people outside of Christ and the church. He's not referring to a race of people necessarily, but thinking about people who are by nature related to Adam, who have come into the world by natural generation in the natural way, and they have brought with them the corruptions of that nature handed down to them by Adam. By the way, that was us, Paul says earlier in Ephesians, that we too were like that. We were just like those people. But now that the Father has come to us in Christ and by the Spirit and brought us to Himself and made us a part of His church and His family, He's called us to live in a very different way. And so we're not lording anything over people. We're not looking down on them as if we were better than they are. We're simply acknowledging that by grace, God has done something to make us different from others. And our mission is to call them by the gospel to come out of that former our former way of life, which is their current way of life, and to show them there is a better way. Calvin describes it like this by saying that by nature, Adam is the fountainhead of all the nations, the children of wrath, which is, again, what we were. But by grace, Christ is the fountainhead of this new family, the children of mercy, the children of God. So there are two families Two families, and we all belong to one of those two families, but you can't belong to both. 
at the same time. All of us by nature belong to the family that was under God's wrath. But by grace, we've been brought into God's family. And now what Paul is telling us is these are the household rules for living in God's family. You've been adopted into the family. You've been brought into his household. And these are the rules that he wants you to live by. You need to live in a way that marks a distinction between yourselves and the world around you. And this is what Paul gets at as he launches into this discussion of the household rules in Ephesians 4 and following. In context, he uses the word walk in two ways. Earlier in Ephesians 4, he, we didn't look at this, but we can glance at it now. He gives you a positive approach, a positive statement. We're urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's positive. That's a positive walk. These are the things we're positively to pursue. And notice the emphasis on humility and gentleness and patience. We're not to be arrogant jerks about the gospel and about our life with God. None of us have the right to make ourselves jerks as we approach others who are outside of Christ. In fact, knowing that we were like them at one time and a part of their family at one time should cause us to approach them with much more gentleness, with care and concern. But then negatively, he gives us a negative that we are no longer to walk as they do. Okay, you can love people, you can engage them in life, you can rub up against them, you can touch them and be close to them. You can you can have coffee with them and engage in their world without becoming like them. There's often a fear of contamination that if we get too close to people that we once used to be a part of, we'll be like them again. But we are called to go on mission to these people. The difference here is that we don't walk as they do. We don't engage in the same futility of mind. And what Paul is getting at there has something to do, deep cut, I'll just say this and leave it, but it has to do with idolatry, with the kind of idols that people erect in their hearts and minds. And Paul's saying, you can't go there. There's a change in you. And you know the true and living God now, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You've experienced the grace and the mercy that come through them into you. So you don't have to get caught up in the idols of this world and walk like those Gentiles do. Now, Paul spends some time here in in Ephesians 4, 18 and following, where he really unpacks for us and describes for us what the pagan mind looks like. And I just want to say something briefly about this. I want to say it quickly and and get to the heart of what uh, what I really want to uh, preach about tonight. But I want to say something briefly here. Paul is not saying about unbelievers that they are that they are idiots or that they're stupid and that they don't know things. He's not saying that we are smarter than they are. And that's sometimes how people take passages like this, where Paul describes the darkness of their understanding, the hardness of their heart, uh, the, the futility of their mind. People get the, they draw the wrong conclusion as if Paul is saying, look, they're not very smart, but you are. They're not smart because they're outside of Christ, but you are really smart because you're in Christ. This, that's not his angle here. OK, we all know that by God's common grace, there are some unbelievers out there who are brilliant. 
They are genius level brilliant. They do, they make discoveries. They create things. They come up with solutions to problems that most of us can't even uh, understand the problem. Right. So Paul isn't saying, hey, you guys are smarter than everyone else and don't be like them because, you know, they're so, uh, so ignorant. He's simply saying that relative to their uh, relative to. Their knowledge of God, they are ignorant. They walk in darkness. They don't understand what you do. In other words, God has revealed himself to you in a way that he hasn't yet revealed himself to Gentiles, to all the people in the world. But he's still revealing himself. He's still making himself known. And he does that with your participation. And we're on mission with God, right? So Paul isn't saying, hey, they have a low IQ, but you have a high IQ because you're in Christ. That's not what he's, that's not what's going on here. He's not saying we're smarter or better than them. He's saying that when it comes to knowing God, God has revealed himself to us and scattered the darkness that was in our minds, the same darkness that's in their minds. And he has shown his light in our hearts A light that we hope and pray he will shine in the hearts of our neighbors around us. But until then, as we look at the world around us, we see a lot of people groping around in the darkness. People who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. People who are excluded from the life of God. And yet by grace, we find that we've been included in the life of God. Not because we were smarter or better than anyone else. But because of God's mercy, because of his grace. And so when it comes to the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, yes, there are people outside the church and outside of Christ who are in way over their heads. They're out of their depth. I can give you a couple of examples. I'm thinking I was thinking this week about the grumpy militant atheist Christopher Hitchens. He would rant and rave and rail against the God who is revealed in Scripture. But he was in way over his head because he was complaining about a God he didn't know. And then you come across wannabe Christians, perhaps like Jordan Peterson, who was trying to figure some things out. Hitchens ran away from God as fast and as loud as he could. And then you have people like Peterson who seem to be walking towards God as slowly and cautiously as possible. I wonder about Peterson, for those of you who know who he is, I wonder if he understood something that C.S. Lewis talked about. Maybe Peterson knows that God is not safe, but he's good, right? And he's just not sure what to do with that. My point of all of this is that these people who are thinking about the things of life and God and the world are struggling to come to grips with them. We're not to walk as they walk. We're to mark a distinction and show them a better way. Show them with gentleness and humility and kindness what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, by the way, is the difference as we get into verse 20 and following. We see that the real difference here is that for many people... For many of those Gentiles, many of the pagans out in the world who are wrestling with their different kinds of idols, whether they're intellectual idols or actual idols that they can hold in their hands. We see that for many of them, God has become this depersonalized, abstract concept. And what Paul is driving at here is something so basic 
that it kind of blows our minds. It's an offense. It's a scandal to the the greater minds of the world, if you will. Because what Paul wants to do is drive us to the center of all reality, which is Jesus Christ. Paul does not engage in a big philosophical debate with all of the people around him. He simply wants to talk about Jesus. And that changes things. Talking about Jesus changes things. I've run this experiment uh, throughout the course of my ministry. You can talk to people all day long. You can show them money. In God we trust. No one is offended by that. Because for them, God is a, a blank check. They can fill in any notion of the deity they want. So God is generic. But what happens if you say, in Jesus Christ we trust? Well, now you've made an exclusive truth claim. Now you have, you have a name brand God, right? You, you're promoting one God over against all of the others. And that bothers people. Well, Paul does this in Ephesians 4.20. He's talking about the world around you and how the world is different and they approach God and they're, they're mystified and live in this cloudiness with a hard heart and such towards God. But he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Okay? That's not the way you learned Christ. Then he says in verse 21, assuming that you have heard him and were taught by him, As the truth that is in Jesus. Now he's gotten very specific, hasn't he? He's referring back to our conversion, how we changed from being like the Gentiles around us, how we were like those children of wrath. And now he points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what makes all the difference is Jesus. And notice what Paul does here. I'm going, to walk, I'm going to slow down a bit to walk you through this. But notice that Paul's point is that it is Jesus Christ who disciples his people. It is Jesus Christ who disciples his people in the truth. And the word disciple is found in the, our English word for learn. The root word there in Greek is where we get the word disciple. But it is Jesus Christ who is discipling, teaching, instructing his people. And what is he teaching them? He's teaching them the truth about himself, the truth that comes from him to the world. And so Paul's point is that God's chosen people must learn Christ, not just Christianity. You must hear Christ and not just hear things about Christ. You must be taught by Jesus for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And it's actually hearing the word of Christ that brings about faith. And so Christ disciples his followers, including you, by means, by means of his word and his spirit. He disciples his church and teaches his church by means of human pastors and teachers. Yes, Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation and the church is the temple of the triune God. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. But Christ works by means of the apostles and prophets and the church and by means of the ministers that he sent the church to make sure that his people know the truth about who he is. In other words, the religion of Christ is more than a religion. It is a religion. It is a binding back to something. 
Uh, It involves devotion, but it's also a relationship. And Christ is in pursuit of a relationship with his people. And we see this worked out in the way he disciples us. He sends ministers of the word into the world to make disciples of all nations. And they go about proclaiming Christ and baptizing people into Christ's body and teaching those baptized people to obey the words of Christ. The mission of the church is Christ centered. And so Jesus is very interested in his people coming to know him. He's also interested in the world coming to know him through the efforts and through the ministries of his people. So God calls his elect people to himself by means of gospel preaching. So what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 4, 20 and 21 is what we might uh, in a more technical sense call effectual calling. Effectual calling has to do with the work of the Spirit of Christ speaking to the hearts of the people of God and drawing God's people to himself by the grace of the Spirit so that those people hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Everyone who is here tonight is hearing the voice of a man. You're hearing the voice of a pastor. That's a general call. But those of you who hear the voice of Christ speaking through his word and through this sermon, you're hearing what not everyone hears. This is the gracious work of God. It's not anything that I can make you hear. It's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear Christ and not myself. And I want to hear Christ and not myself as well. But this effectual call is the gracious work of Christ by his spirit for his people. And that's why Paul says our English translations kind of cloud this up a bit. But this is why Paul says you didn't learn Christ in this way. Assuming that you've heard Christ, you've heard Christ and not just about Christ. And you were taught by Christ as the truth that is in him. John Calvin says in a sermon on this passage of Scripture, he says, let us understand that Jesus Christ is the goal to which God the Father calls us. Let us understand that Jesus Christ is the goal to which God the Father calls us. And this is consistent with what Paul says in other sections of his writings and other places where he talks about God's ultimate purpose for you and for me, for people who are in Christ, is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. It's not enough to be Christ centered. We need to be Christ centered and we need to be Christ focused and all those other things that we like to say here in the 21st century. But what we really want to get at is conformity to the image of Christ. We can revolve around a lot of things without becoming like it. It's not enough to revolve around Christ or to orbit him. We need to become like him. And that's what Paul is getting at here. When you have a personal, relational, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the spirit and the word of God, that transforms you from the inside out. It's irresistible grace. You want to change. 
Even in your moments when you're fighting against it and feel reluctant, you want to do the right thing because Christ has gotten hold of your heart. And all of this is in the background of what Paul says as he gets to this uh, section in 23, I'm sorry, 22 to 24. As we talk about renovation, we've seen the devolution of the Gentile mind, but now we want to see the renovation of the Christian mind. We've seen how because of sin, the world around us is decreated and people are decreated and become children of wrath. But now we get to see the recreation of the people of God. And notice what Paul says here. He talks about two things. There is a putting off of the old self and a putting on of the new self. And right in the middle of it in verse 23 is this language about renewal in the spirit of your minds. So a couple of things are happening here. Passively, what's happening is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are working in you, inside out, transforming you. You are being changed. It's passive. Something is happening to you from the inside out. But that's not all, that, that's not all that's going on. What else is going on is active. There's something active where you are cooperating with, working together with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in your pursuit of sanctification, in your pursuit of becoming like Jesus. And you see that in the language of put off your old self, put on the new self. You see that? So there are two things here. The passive, you are passive as the Holy Spirit works in you and upon you to help you become like Jesus. But then you reflect his work in your life by demonstrating with your hands and your eyes and your feet and your body that the Spirit of God is truly at work in you. Because now you're finding yourself engaging in this process of change. You're putting off one thing and putting on another thing. And so the renovation that's happening on the inside is reflected in a life of repentance. Luther said all of life is repentance. Tim Keller popularized the slogan. And now we get to echo it, remind ourselves that, yes, all of life is repentance. Repentance isn't just about navel gazing and moping and feeling terrible about ourselves. It's about pursuing The image of Christ. And notice that Paul is so positive here as he talks about how we've been created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we've heard the truth of Jesus and then the truth of Jesus begins to shape and reshape us, form and reform us in the image and likeness of Christ. Jesus is the standard. He is the rule of faith and life. And it is this truth that requires us to live a life of constant change, of repentance from the inside out. The truth requires us to relent, to give up ourselves for the Lord, to give up our sins for the Lord. This is not easy. This is hard work. It is costly work. And to illustrate just how hard and costly it is, I want to draw on um, a personal experience. My wife and I share a closet at home. One of us has more stuff in the closet than the other. And we share that space and we're constantly trying to figure out what can stay and what can go. 
So I want to ask you, have any of you ever, have any of you ever had a situation where you're in your closet and you look around and, you, and you're like, I got a closet full of nothing to wear. Okay. You ever been there? I've been there. And I just have a little section, right? A little section. There's nothing to wear. Nothing I want to wear. The shirt I liked yesterday, I hate today. The thing I wore two weeks ago that seemed so flattering now seems fattening. I mean, I don't know. Something's going on there, okay? Wardrobe crisis. You stare at your clothes and you feel like you got a closet full of nothing to wear. What happens? You end up, and, and guys, don't act like you don't do this. Don't blame, don't say it's just a woman thing. We all do this. You put on one thing after another, but nothing seems quite to fit today. You've had those days, right? You, uh, you keep clothes in your closet that no longer fit. They're not even in style, and they're not coming back in style for 20 years. And by then, you won't be able to wear them at all, right? We all go through this. You keep clothes for sentimental reasons. Sentimental reasons, because there are things you can't let go. You remember what happened in that garment, and you can't let it go, whether it was a good or bad thing. You think maybe if I keep all this stuff, I might fit into it again. I mean, I've been going to the gym a couple of times a week. So maybe, maybe I can slip back into that, right? You keep things around for special occasions. You have a hard time letting stuff go. You pull stuff off the rack. You leave it on the floor. It gets back on the rack. You don't know what to do with these things. And then you reach a breaking point. If you're like me, you reach a breaking point and you say, I can't take it anymore. I just got to rip off the Band-Aid. And so you bring a trash bag in. You just start pulling stuff off. You don't remember. You don't even check the pockets. For all you know, there's a $10 bill in there somewhere. But someone's going to get lucky if it is because you got to get rid of these things. Okay? You're stuffing a trash bag. You get rid of it. Here's where I'm going with all this. I think when we look in our own personal lives and we see these racks of clothes full of nothing to wear and whatever else is going on with us, there's something to be learned from that about what Paul is saying here. When Paul says, put off the old self, that sounds great. It sounds theological. We think, well, yeah, that's the thing we ought to do. But if you've ever had a hard time giving up a garment of clothing, if you've had a hard time giving up Cotton and polyester and nylon. If you can't give that up, imagine how much harder it's going to be for you to give up the old man that is so much a part of who you are. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight. You're not going to want to let go of it. You're going to find a reason why you need to keep this old man around because you might need him someday. He hasn't always been bad to you. Sometimes he's comforted you. Sometimes he's abused you, but tried to make it right. You you see where I'm going with this? This is what Paul is getting at. This is going to be much more difficult than just taking off the shirt at the end of a day and then wearing a different shirt tomorrow. No, this is about a lifestyle and a mentality and and a condition of heart. You've got to get rid of this old man because he's going to kill you. He's going to kill you. Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I'm telling you, it happens to us. It kills us in a lot of different ways. But we got to have the grace. we got to have the grace and the mercy, the help of the Holy Spirit to get rid of this old man. Like we might get rid of old garments out of our closet. we got to do some spring cleaning. 
It's the Lenten season. Lent is about springtime. Do some spring cleaning. Look in your heart. Look at your life and find out what's got to go. You don't need it anymore. You don't need the old man. You don't need his stuff. You don't need his lies. You don't need his tricks. You don't need all of that. You got to get rid of it. So I'm encouraging you to go to war with that old man. Fight him to the ground and kill him. Or he's going to kill you. That's what Paul is getting at. It's not this dainty, I'm tired, take off my clothes, take a quick bath and go to bed. No, no. This is, you get rid of the old man. You put him off and you put him away. You put him down. And then what do you do? You put on this new man. You see, all of us who were born into the world came through Adam. And Adam is that old man. And he will kill us. But Christ is the new man who died for us that we might live. And that's the man we need to put on moment by moment, day after day. And we do it in righteousness and holiness according to the truth of Jesus Christ. As one commentator said, we need to live in a way that is consistent with our new identity in Christ. And that is no easy task. This is about sanctification. And Paul uses this language of putting off and putting on. And what that should remind us of is our baptismal experience. It's a metaphor of the Christian life, an existential sign of an eternal reality. That baptism is a means by which God consecrates us, sets us apart, devotes us to himself. Baptism is a sign and seal of our disuniting from Adam and our uniting to Jesus Christ. It signifies that we were transported from the dominion of sin in the old man, in the old world. And we were brought into a realm of grace and life under Jesus Christ. It signifies that the old self was crucified with Christ and the new self is resurrected with Christ so that we may walk in newness of life. It signifies that the rags of Adam were put off and the righteous robes of Jesus Christ have been put on. This is what Paul is getting at here. Now I want to give you a pastoral exhortation as we come to the home stretch. The preacher in Ecclesiastes said there is a season for everything. There is a time for every matter under heaven. And I'm assuming he thought even Lent would fit into that. But here's how I want you to think about Lent. That Lent is a time to die to yourself. It is a time to pluck up the sins that are deeply rooted. A time to kill your sin. A time to break down old habits. A time to weep over sin. A time to mourn your weakness and brokenness. It is a time to cast away the stones that weigh you down. A time to refrain from embracing your passions and lust. A time to lose your life that you may find it. A time to cast away your sins. A time to tear them off and tear them up. A time to keep silence and hear the Spirit of Christ. A time to hate your sin, the flesh and the devil. A time to wage war against them. Lent is a time to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And so I want to urge you with all of your hearts as baptized Christians to fight the good fight of the faith. To pick a fight with the sins that plague you the most and go to war with them. Show them no mercy. Give them no quarter. But I want to encourage you to not do it by yourself. Do it in community. 
Do it with others. Confess your sins to God. Ask God to forgive you and to fight with you and for you to defeat and destroy those sins. But also find some trustworthy brothers and sisters and confess your sins to one another and ask some brothers and sisters also to fight with you and for you in this season of warfare. Let us pray together.